Hi, it's John Wanamaker with a quick reminder. Monthly sustaining gifts are the most reliable way to support the coverage you expect from NPR News. Become a sustaining member to help us serve Minnesota's changing needs and power this podcast. Give today at nprnews.org. Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. Even in the midst of the slow motion collapse of Florence Williams' marriage, there's a before and after moment, a glimpse of the end, although it would take two years to get there, and painful uncertainty about what lay beyond. Williams was on the road to heartbreak, a place many of us visit but few scientists completely understand. She writes in the introduction to her new book, The language of heartbreak may sometimes sound mundane, but the havoc it inflicts on our brains and bodies is trenchant, profound, and until recently, understudied. Florence Williams is a writer. Her new book is titled Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. Welcome. I've been really eager to talk about the book. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me on, Carrie. Florence, that before and after moment that I mentioned in the introduction is your accidental access to your husband's email and this letter, I think in draft form, that he'd written to another woman. And yet, in the moment, it sounds like you believed your marriage could be salvaged. And I wonder, as you look back, why you thought the marriage would prevail, despite this land of heartbreak that you were entering into. Mm. There, you know, there are so many emotions that go through you when you see an email like that, <laughs> professing, you know, your husband's love to someone else. Um, I, I, I would say the initial reaction was just shock and disbelief. Um, you know, and 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 then you know, my body sort of immediately kind of took on these emotions. You know, you. you those sort of um, those cliches where you feel like your stomach dropped out from under you, all those things kind of seem to happen. But I mean, ultimately, I believed my marriage was pretty good. Um, I mean, we had been together at that point. Our marriage was twenty five years, which is a long marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, uh, you know, you, you sort of expect that there are going to be periods in which you're more connected or disconnected. Um, and there's always kind of the hope that you'll come back together, you know, if you're feeling a little bit disconnected. And I'd say we we, we definitely probably were in one of those zones for sure. Um, but, you know, we had two teenagers. Uh, I was very attached to my life. I was very attached to my identity, uh, you know, which I had really um, enjoyed since I was 18. <laughs> so I didn't really know anything else. Uh, and I, I'd say there's, you know, in, in those moments, there's a lot of denial and there's a lot of fear right. uh, for, for the future. I'm so glad you brought up the physicality of this early in our conversation here, because you use a lot of physical descriptions of your heartbreak. And one of the things that you experience is this sense of vigilance And I think anyone who has been through this kind of shock, whether it's your heart is broken, somebody has died that you love, some kind of trauma has been visited on you, the body, it sounds like, almost goes into this threat mode, right? You are hypervigilant about the things that are happening around you. And I know you talked to Helen Fisher about this, and I want to talk about that in a minute, 
but I want you to describe what this vigilance felt like. Yeah, I think you're right. It was definitely uh, threat related. Uh, it's it's really your flight or fight system turning on in a big way. And, and part of why that happens is that, you know, as humans, we're not supposed to be left alone. <laughs> we're not supposed to be abandoned. We don't feel safe if we're apart, you know, from our kin group or our community or our people. Um, and so when your primary partner, uh, you know, takes off, which is essentially what happened, um, you, your body thinks that it's basically left alone on the plains, <laughs> you know, and that hyenas are circling. Um, you feel like predators are going to come get you. Um, you know, and it's not, it's not a conscious kind of feeling, but, but subconsciously that's what, what your body is doing. It's sort of preparing for some kind of attack. And so, um, your, your, you know, your adrenals really turn on your uh, stress hormones like norepinephrine, you know, start firing into your muscles. Um, and what that looks like is that, yeah, you're kind of buzzing. I, I think I describe it in the book as I felt like I was plugged into a faulty electrical socket. Yeah, you I had did. This That's weird exactly frenetic, what you said. Exactly. A weird kind of frenetic energy or like a buzzsaw, you know, with no wood to cut is <laughs> another way I describe it. <laughs> and and that's why you have all this sleeplessness. Um, and, you know, you feel sort of on edge and you're you're kind of looking over your shoulder a lot. And it's, it's just, it's classic. I don't want to say stress because even um, it's different from stress. I mean, stress can be sort of productive and helpful in some ways and, you know, helps you get out of bed. This is really like a threat response where you, you do feel in some ways imperiled. I mean, so the, the science of that is so interesting because what you're describing, right, is some evolutionary code that is written into our DNA. And no matter what your logical contemporary brain says about, but I'm, I'm safe to lay down at night, the hyenas are not going to get me, I still have people around me. You know, somewhere in that, you know, the way our brains have evolved, there is this deep, deep perception that you are in danger. That's right. And it, it makes sense, you know, if you think about it evolutionarily. I mean, humans don't have a lot going on to protect ourselves. We, you know, we don't have large fangs. We're not, we're not super fast. <laughs> we do have large brains. Um, but a lot of what those large brains spend their energy on is learning how to be in a group. We put an incredible amount of, of, of energy into sort of getting along with other people because we know that that's how we survive. That's how we thrive. Um, that's kind of our superpower. We are, we are what's considered a hyper social animal. Uh, and we're very, very sensitive to cues of rejection, <laughs> which I talk about a lot. Um, and, and that's sort of separate from, from being alone. It's sort of a, a separate layer. You know, A, we don't want to be alone, but B, when we're sort of feeling rejected, um, we feel that very, very deeply as a threat to our survival as well. So um, let's talk a bit about your conversations with Helen Fisher, who is known for writing these books about love, right? Really understanding the science of what happens in the brain and the body. Uh, when we're in love, when we're attached to someone, she says to you, I think nature has overdone it. Why is it that we struggle so badly 
Why can't we just walk off and find a new partner and be happy again? So what did you learn about the science that answers those questions? It was so lovely to um, really, um, I, I ran into Helen Fisher at a conference. And this was before I knew I was writing about this experience. I was just, uh, I, I, I just was feeling the heartbreak. And uh, I knew she might have some insight. And so I kind of accosted her at this conference. And I said, I said, Hey, would you talk to me? Because <laughs> I'm going through this heartbreak, and I'm trying to understand what's happening to my brain, which feels like it's sort of exploding. And she said, Of course, I'll talk to you you know, come on over. And, and she's 20 years older than I am. She's this, this wonderful maternal figure um, who just radiates not only a sort of calm um, affect, you know, which is very comforting, but, but also just this wisdom. Like She really does. Mm-hmm. She's thought a lot about mm-hmm. this. She's looked at it anthropologically. She's looked at it across cultures. And yes, while she normally looks at love and sort of the, you know, the wonderful neuroscience of falling in love, um, she's also spent a little bit of time looking at what happens on the other side um, when we're heartbroken. And so, so yeah, she said, she said, it is ridiculous, isn't it? How operatic, you know, we sort of become. And <laughs> from her science of looking at people who have been, what she calls dumped, people who've been dumped, um, <laughs> you know, they, they become really dramatic and histrionic and they can't stop thinking about it. They fight to get their partners back. They, in, in a way, what she, how she described it is that, um, you know, love is like a drive in our brain, sort of like hunger or thirst. Um, it's not just an emotion. It's this, it's this sort of deeply evolved drive. And so when it's missing, um, again, we go into this kind of survival state. We crave it. Um, even if our partner has proved himself to be, um, you know, not very reliable <laughs> yeah, and, like and unworthy, not good for us right? and unworthy, we still long for that person um, because it's like an addiction. It's like a craving. Um, and, and just, you know, it was very validating, you know, to talk to her. It, it kind of helped me make sense of why these emotions just seemed so overpowering and so big. She put it into perspective. And she was also, she was, she was very, um, you know, encouraging in a way. She said, look, you know, you're young, which was funny, but because I, I didn't feel young. I was, you know, 50, but she's <laughs> 20 years older. She said, look, you're young. You know, someday you're going to look back on this and you're going to say, Thank God he left me because I'm so much happier now. And, and, and that was a hard thing to even imagine, you know, feeling. <laughs> but on some level, she was just so reassuring and sort of optimistic about it. And then she was like, you should fall in love again. Absolutely. It's the best thing in the world. It's so good for you. <laughs> I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to my conversation with Florence Williams on my Friday book show. Her new book is titled Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. Um. I I want to talk to you about loneliness because you write the shock of heartbreak and the pain of loss are devastating, but what often comes after scared me more than anything. And that was the loneliness that followed. Yeah, that caught me a bit by surprise. I mean, you're in the, you're in the fire of the heartbreak and the loss. You must not have felt like the, you must have also felt like I'm going to have to travel this desert of loneliness too before I start to feel like myself again. Describe for me how you were feeling about those stages that you were going through. Yeah. So the stages, uh, as I sort of understood them and as I experienced them, 
uh, and as I sort of learned, you know, from from doing the research and, and talking to people, was that first there's this kind of shock, you know, the, the sort of stunning that happens. Um, and then there's, you know, the grief and the rejection. And then the loneliness sets in. Uh, and then hopefully, <laughs> you know, there's a period of kind of reckoning and growth um, and and recovery. But I was very afraid of being alone. Um, mm-hmm. I had never been alone. I mean, I, I as I say, I was it was a 25 year marriage, but but I actually had met the man who would be my husband when I was 18, uh, actually on my first day of college. <laughs> so I had mm-hmm. just left home uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know met this man who had become my boyfriend and then my husband. I had never really been single as an adult. Uh, and even though I had teenagers, um, yeah. you know, they I mean, would you just... you had kids. You had a circle of kids. friends. Let's just say you weren't alone. But you feel alone. That's the thing. And of course, now my, yeah. my kids would, would, would physically be apart from me for half the time. Um, so I would face an empty house, you know, on a regular basis for the first time. Um, and I... I f- so the interesting thing about loneliness, you know, is it's it's actually a subjective emotion. Um, you know, you can be in a marriage and feel lonely. You can right. be living in a city or, you know, have lots of house, house, housemates and still feel lonely. Um, and, of course, you can be alone and not feel lonely. You can feel sort of, you know, that you're in the comfort um, and care of your friends and, and you know, people in your life. Um, so it's it's a very subjective emotion and I was so afraid of it having never been there before. I felt like I really needed to learn how to be alone. Hmm. You know, I've read a lot about the science of loneliness and I'm going to talk to you a bit about Olivia Lang here in just a second, Mm, but one of the things I've wondered about is whether, and, and maybe there's some science that supports this. Some people are more, genetically or temperamentally prone to deep loneliness and others have whatever that cluster of personality traits is to say, this is hard. I do feel traumatized, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to let myself wallow in this. I'm going to do the things I need to do, even if it's going to be painful to march on. I mean, is there any science to like who ends up in this kind of well of deep loneliness? My understanding is that it actually can afflict anyone. Uh, and, mm. and it does require sometimes a, a constellation of circumstances. And, and those are going to differ for different people. Um, you know, as I say, some people will feel lonely even surrounded by other friends. And, and possibly, I think if you're, um, you know, maybe if you're very introverted and and you know, you derive a lot of your energy from being alone, you might not feel as threatened by that. Um, but um, my understanding is that it can really afflict any of us. And it, again, loneliness is is sort of a survival drive. It's actually, it can be a very um, positive feeling because it mm-hmm. forces us to um, try to sort of slake that thirst. Um, it forces us to say, God, I really miss people. I'm going to go look for people. Um, that's that's the upside of it. You know, it can be very motivating. The downside of it is that if it becomes sort of chronic, then this weird thing happens um, that's very counterproductive, where you actually start to feel um, 
suspicious of other people. You start to see mm. threat where threat doesn't exist. Loneliness can do mm-hmm. this weird kind of twisting thing where it actually makes us less likely to make friends um, because mm. maybe we feel mm. sorry for ourselves or we, you know, we sort of judge other people more harshly than we otherwise would. So there's this sort of fine maybe, line. Maybe we also emit, you know, that in some ways. I mean, maybe it's not perceived by the self, but maybe you are kind of giving off you know, this, this sense of guardedness and maybe some paranoia. And so that makes it even more difficult to draw people into your circle. What do you think? I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so I, you know, the thing with loneliness is you want to try to, um, um, you want to try to deal with it before you become that kind of like desperate, lonely person, you know, who's going to drive other people away. (laughs) So you don't really want to let it go on for too long. <laughs> um, it sounded like you're familiar with Olivia Lang's writing on, on loneliness. Have you read her memoir, The Lonely City? I have. I have. I, I'm a okay, huge fan good. of Olivia Lang. Yes. Good. I am too. Oh, this is great. I thought about her memoir a lot as I, as I read your book. She And for our listeners who have not read it yet, highly recommended. She moves to New York City from London for a man. And she kind of gives up her life in London. And when she gets there, he basically tells her, tells her he's not sure about continuing the relationship. And suddenly she's utterly alone in New York City. And she's, do you remember, Florence, how she is like wandering the city and... Well, with some of the vigilance that you talked about and observing the people around her and looking in, you know, kind of windows where people are going on with their life. I mean, she did a wonderful job of, you know, bringing us into that kind of internal experience of loneliness Do you see why what you were writing about kind of prompted me to think about this? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, she's a young person. She's in a city. She's not someone who we we sort of think of as being a lonely type. Um, But again, it's the heartbreak, you know. And, And one of the things she really kind of elucidated for me was that loneliness really represents a gap between what you want and what you have. So, um, you're not going to be lonely if you're perfectly happy, (laughs) you know, being single, um, or, you know, working on your, um, you know, your poetry or whatever. Um, it's, it's when you want something you don't have that you develop this sort of keen yearning. Um, that's a very, very, um, that is a heartbreaking feeling in in and of itself because it's just consumed by loss, yeah, and it's not about I want what I can't have. It's like I had for her, I had the promise of this. I had, you know, I had an experience of this and then all of a sudden it's gone. Yes, and instead of being able to kind of look at your future in this, you know, planned, expected, secure way, what you're looking at and she describes it like this, you're looking into a void. And that's terrifying. Right. Uh, she wrote something interesting in an op-ed as we all went into COVID uh, isolation that I, that I think applies to our conversation. She says, loneliness is a taboo state in our social world, and part of its extraordinary pain has to do with shame, 
There's an abiding feeling that it's a punishment for social failure, an inability to be sufficiently popular or liked. I never really thought about the shame of this. What, what occurs to you about that? Absolutely. People don't generally talk about their loneliness uh, in the way that, you know, we often don't talk about a lot of really negative, emotion, difficult emotions. Uh, it's, it's actually one of the motivations I had for writing my book. Um, I feel like when we can share these emotions, um, the burden gets lightened, um, you know, for us. And also there's this sense of, well, maybe we can all learn something, you know, from my terrible experience. Uh, and, and that can help <laughs> help provide a sense of, of mission in a way that can be very comforting and healing. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really think there's much to be gained from keeping secrets about our emotional states. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, many of us are taught to do. Um, you know, we're not comfortable with this. But, but I, I do think it's actually really, really important, not just for our own healing, but for sort of a cultural healing that we need to experience as well. This is why... It's so, the way you approach this is, I mean, super enlightening and brave. I mean, you wrote about some things that I think many people wouldn't want to bear for the very reasons that Olivia is writing about there. There's a shame and, and a really raw loss, and you are in kind of a tailspin, and you tell us what that's like, and you do some things that you know, in maybe other times you wouldn't have done, but that's where you're at. Um, I think that's co- pretty courageous. <laughs> when, when you began to put this all down on paper, what was the decision about just how candid you were going to be about what this was like and some of the decisions you were making? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess I didn't have a huge conflict about the disclosure, even though this book is so much more personal than my other books. Um, I, I grew up in a family where my mother was a psychotherapist. In some ways, you know, maybe feel a little bit more comfortable with disclosure than other people. Um, but I, you know, I won't deny, look, it is, it is, it is exposing. Um, I do feel, you know, somewhat vulnerable about it. Um, but I just feel like Maybe it's my age too. I'm just like, you know what? Damn it! I'm I'm I want to talk about this, and I think I think <laughs> that this is good for us. It's good for me, and you know, let's have some conversations, and you know, let's help each other out. Florence Williams is talking about it on the show, on our book show, and her new book is titled "Heartbreak: A Personal and Scientific Journey." It's a memoir that combines her experience with leaving a long marriage. And what she learned about scientifically what was happening in her brain and body. Florence, I want to talk about your experience with Steve Cole. Um, he runs the UCLA Social Genomics Core Laboratory. And you persuade him, I guess, to do an analysis of your blood because you want to know what about that? Yes. So as I investigated the health effects of heartbreak and loneliness, uh, it wasn't before, it wasn't long before I was led to the work of, of Dr. Cole, Stephen Cole. And what he has done is, um, on, on a pretty large scale, examined the blood work 
um, of people who are lonely <laughs> and has compared it to people who aren't lonely because we know from the science and we know from sort of the medical research that people who are lonely do face a significantly higher risk of a number of diseases um, and early death. So especially diseases related to inflammation, um, you know, Alzheimer's, um, heart disease, uh, some cancers. Um, so, so being, being, being lonely and being heartbroken for a long time, um, can have really devastating consequences for our health. I was experiencing some pretty dramatic health effects, uh, after the split. And here was a man who could actually and that analyze our blood samples and say, oh, I see you have these genetic markers of loneliness. <laughs> and these are not, these are not yeah. genes that we're born with, right? I mean, these are actually the way our genes get expressed when we're, you know, our genes are supposed to be very responsive to our environments. So um, there, we have some leukocytes, which are white blood cells. And the way he describes them is they listen for loneliness, they are actually mm -hmm. listening to our social state. And I just, I thought that was fascinating. You know, why would it a gene, why, yeah, why would your white blood cells care, you know, if, if you've been dumped, right, by someone you love? Um, but they do. And it's because they're gearing up for threat, actually. And this probably goes way back to our, you know, evolutionary, evolutionary time when, when to be rejected and sort of kicked out of your kin group um, did, did in fact, literally mean you'd be more likely to be attacked by a predator um, because you would not have that safety in numbers. And so our, our, this is sort of, a, it's sort of a long explanation, but our immune systems actually switch up the, the cells that they upregulate and downregulate in order to prepare for a blood wound, <laughs> a bacterial it's infection. incredible. Yeah. And they, but, but the terrible thing is they downregulate for viral infections because viruses are spread in groups. And mm. so this is exactly the mm. wrong response that you want in a pandemic. Um, it's the wrong response if you're um, someone who has HIV, which is what Steve Cole started out studying for many years. Um, and he found that, that gay men with HIV who were um, still in the closet uh, and therefore sort of lonely with their diagnoses um, were more likely to get AIDS, to progress to AIDS more quickly and more likely to die sooner. And so eventually he started looking at the genetic markers. And, I, and so actually it was his idea. He said, why don't you come to the lab and we'll take a look at your blood and then we'll look at it again, you know, in six months. And then we'll look at it again in a year and we'll see if, you know, we'll see what your blood, how your blood is responding to your social state. Yeah, I, I just, I want to read a, a couple sentences here from this part of the book, because I just, I found this really intriguing. Cole zeroes in on a block of about 200 genes that make up what he calls an organized conspiracy in the immune system, joining forces to launch an uptick in inflammation, and as you noted, a downtick in our ability to fight viruses. Up goes the production of molecules like C-reactive protein, interleukin-6. Down goes the production of antibodies and protective proteins like type 1 interferon. So you knew, you, you knew, I guess, in some ways, that you were more vulnerable to some things and you were more prepared against others. And that's the effect that this loss and loneliness was having on, on your body and on your immune system. So interesting. It, it was really interesting. Um, and I, after talking to him, I understood the urgency to recover from heartbreak. 
um, it's not something that you want to wallow in for a super long time because it has real consequences on your health. And I, and I think this is something that's really underappreciated. You know, we, we think of heartbreak as being an emotional state. Um, we think of it as all in our heads. Um, and it is partly in our heads, but it turns out <laughs> it's in our bodies as well. And it can make us sick. You know, um, I... I guess I was working on preparing for the conversation when the news of Joan Didion's death came in. And I interviewed her for that year of magical thinking, that memoir mm. about the death of her husband and the serious illness of her daughter at the same time. And she, she kind of, she doesn't do the scientific investigation that you do of herself, but she has all of this observation again, about what her body and brain are telling her, including that hypervigilance that you talked yes. about. Yes. Um, ha have you read that memoir? I have read that memoir. Um, and, and it was also illuminating to me, um, you know, the way she talks about grief as being not just about the loss, you know, and not right. just about what you don't have, what's missing, but that there, it, it becomes a fear of, of what's next. Um, so she, she sort of put, put that um, connection between grief and loss in a very kind of clarifying way for me. You know, I was curious about, um, of course, you talk a bit about your kids, but you, have, you also give them privacy in this. How aware do you think your kids were about what this was doing to each of their parents? Or is some of what you've written here about your emotions, somewhat of a revelation to your kids. How, how old are they now? They are now 18 and 20. Um, okay. I've actually asked them not to read the book because I... Really? I, huh. Yeah. I mean, maybe someday, but, but well, frankly, I mean, they haven't read any of my books. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not sure it's that <laughs> so different. Like, sure. Okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, there, there are revelations in here about my sort of post-divorce sex life. You know, no kid wants to read about that. And um, bravo, Florence, I bravo. I would spare them. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, kids are very, they're very perceptive. And I would say, you know, my ex-husband and I tried very, very hard to be amicable, to be present and loving for them and reassuring to them. I think we did an amazing job of that, actually. I'm really proud of that. But I mm -hmm. also didn't really hide, you know, my emotions. Um, and I didn't want them to hide theirs. I wanted us to, you know, be able to talk if we if we felt like we wanted to. Um, and and my, my son, actually, the older one, was, was, I would say, particularly perceptive. Um, mm. And sometimes, you know, he would just like reach out and hold my hand at a particular moment. And he would say, how are you doing, mom? And, or he would say, you know, mom, I'm here for you if you need me. And it just, you know, it was so inspiring to me and made me feel very loved and made me feel very unlonely. <laughs> That's, That's really one of the hear. gifts of heartbreak is that, you know, people's, not everyone, not some of your friends disappear, but but the ones who are really there for you are really there for you. And that is a beautiful thing to experience. I guess I wondered, it can be traumatic. And a lot of kids experience this, right? To see parents split and go through really difficult experiences with that. But I, 
I think there's also, I think research will support this, that that is deeply influential in the way kids who have seen this happen and are aware of what this means see their own, what, potential romantic relationships, see the world around them, see themselves. Did you wonder what this might mean for the way they would think about, you know, forming these kinds of bonds with someone? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, ch- the children were one of the main reasons why I didn't want to get divorced. Um, I mean, we know, and, and I'm a child of divorce. Actually, my ex-husband is also. Um, you know, and we know from the data that the children of divorce do face a higher risk um, for, you know, a host of issues, um, including, you know, um, school success, school achievement, which is, of course, something so many parents are are really hyper-focused on. And I think one of the reasons why divorce has dropped a lot among college-age professionals, something we don't really talk about, but but divorce, the divorce rates of of people my age um, who've been married two decades or more with a college education, the divorce rates are only about 10 to 15% in that population, which I think is remarkable mm. and, and also something yeah, that's not is. really um, understood. But, but yes, the, the data also says that children of divorce do face a higher risk of um, themselves getting divorced um, and of having sort of more, you know, issues with their own love lives later on. Um, so it, so it's definitely something I think about, um, but I, I hope that, um, you know, I hope, I hope that we have modeled and are modeling, you know, that we still kind of believe in love and, um, and uh, you know, value, value the importance of, of having close romantic relationships in your life. So if, your ki- if you've asked your kids not to read the memoir, what about the ex-husband? Do you know or care? Um, actually, he did read it. I gave him an early draft. I didn't want to surprise him with this. And I wanted him, you know, to be able to have some say. Um, and in fact, he, he, <laughs> I would say he, he, he first asked me, uh, or he, I think he was hopeful I wouldn't, I would change my mind, <laughs> you know, and not publish it because he's, he's really? a more private person <laughs> than I am. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you know, I'm really comfortable with disclosure. He is less comfortable with it. Um, but he asked me to change a few things, and I and I did change them. And um, I have to say, I'm I'm actually really grateful that he sort of came around to a place where he understood why I wanted to write this book and and why it might be helpful to other people. So I, I mean, I, I I think he probably still wishes it, it weren't out there in the world, but um, <laughs> I I am grateful Tough. that he understands it. <laughs> he's not a, I think he's you're a, a he's nicer a good than guy. I would be. I he's, get that. He, he, I, he really guy. doesn't come off as a as a uh, black and white villain, <laughs> I guess. Good, good. Okay, um, we'll tell him that. <laughs> all right. Uh, so I read your book, The Nature Fix, and you, and I wish I'd had a chance to talk to you about it when it came out, but it's fun to be able to talk now. You say, and and this this kind of follows with some of the things that you do to Uh, address your heartbreak. But you say in that book, our nervous systems are built to resonate with set points derived from the natural world. So you, I think, I think I can say this, you knew that it was going to be important for you to get out into nature, that was going to be healing. But what is it that you began to understand about, again, that the scientific changes that would be happening in your brain and body when you were out 
you know, in these spaces that you love and in nature? Yes, it was a whole new level of understanding, you know, in some ways. Um, In the nature fix, I really talk about the ways that nature can sort of make us happier and healthier and more creative. And all of a sudden, I felt like I was facing, you know, sort of a, a deeper need for survival. Um, right. And and could nature really help help me with, you know, something that was more traumatic, you know, sort of a, a deep kind of um, core trauma to my identity. And um, so it, it, I think it was logical that I looked to the lessons of that first book. And I also spend time with other people who had experienced, you know, pretty deep uh, PTSD, for example. So there's a, a chapter in Heartbreak, um, you know, in which I go backpacking with a group of women who had been sex trafficked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm not sort of equating, you know, my particular kind of 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 emotional trauma with theirs, but, but I felt like there were some lessons to be learned there. And... I think the, the strongest lesson I learned was that in order to heal, in order to sort of get past these things and grow, we have to calm down. You have to turn, you have to dial down the flight or fight response. You have to stop that norepinephrine from flooding, you know, your brain and your body because the healing can't happen if you feel unsafe. So mm-hmm. safety is the first step, sort of calming down. And nature, it turns out, you know, is great for that. It can help reset our nervous systems. It can help us learn to sort of take deep breaths again. It can put our perceptual systems, um, you know, in a place where they feel comfortable, even subconsciously. Um, you know, our our eyes, our, our perceptual systems, our, our visual systems, they know how to read a nat- natural landscape and how to feel at home in there. That's what they're wired to do. They're not really wired to take in all the information, you know, from crossing uh, an intersection or a traffic circle in Hmm. Washington, D.C. And so, um, you know, on some subconscious level, I knew that my body could start to learn how to calm down again if I was outside. Yeah. Yeah, I love the idea that telling yourself, I've got to calm down, I'm going to take a hike. Meanwhile, your body and your brain are doing, when you're out in nature, all of this work, as you say, to, you know, to kind of resonate with the experience of moving and these landscapes around you and this sense that there's a, there's a consistency and an eternal kind of sensibility, right, to what you're, what you're seeing, when you're out in nature and how valuable that is. Yes. And, and sadly, I think so many of us are disconnected enough from the natural world that we no longer recognize that tool that we sort of Mm -hmm. have in our toolbox. Um, You know, once we start moving our bodies, um, once we start taking deeper breaths, um, seeing things that are beautiful, getting a little bit outside of the soundtrack, you know, of our distress, um, experiencing beauty and awe pulls us out of our, of our egos, you know, in a very helpful way. Um, and there's a, a lot, of course, a lot of interesting science there that I, that I go into that I'm super fascinated by. Um, and so I tried harder than ever <laughs> to cultivate beauty, you know, and to see it because I, I knew from the science it was going to be helpful. 
part of the way that you do that is you put together this challenging in some in some parts of it, this river trip, river rafting trip. And I think your daughter comes along for part of it. What, what as you, as you kind of conceived of this whole trip, um, I guess what kind of, what did you have in mind? I mean, why was it set up the way it was? Mm-hmm. The river trip I undertook was uh, about 30 days. And part of it was a solo. So for the for the first two weeks, I was with other people. Actually, my son joined me for a section. My daughter joined me for a section. Um, I had my, my, my brothers and my sister joined me for a section. Um, friends. And part of that was to experience the awe, experience the beauty, sort of get away, you know, from the daily routines of my life into a more reflective space. Um, into kind of a passage, if you will, you know, sort of a transitional state, because I was hoping to reach a new, a new geography, you know, emotionally. Uh, And a river seemed like a great metaphor for doing that. Uh, And then for the solo piece, I wanted to do a few things. I wanted to learn how to be alone. So I Mm. thought in order to learn how to be alone, I'm just going to go be alone. I'm going to make myself be alone. Um, And then I also wanted to learn how to be braver, how to how to be more self-reliant i know and there's no better way to sort of rely on yourself than to to make everyone else disappear in the wilderness um you know you've got to sort of row your own boat now again you know that (laughs) metaphor seemed really real um so so those were my goals and i would say that i um i attained them probably only partly (laughs) (laughs) i'll come back to that in a minute i i really love this section of the book because um As you're thinking about the solo part that's coming up, you say, at first I'd resisted thinking of my river journey in the context of a right or quest, because those terms have been too easily appropriated by Castaneda-following groupies and seekers. I wasn't going to be smudging myself with sage or going hungry in hopes of seeing visions. But then you have a conversation with this teacher, and she runs an outdoor program, Uh, It's a three-day wilderness solo for seniors. Do you remember what she tells you? This ends up being kind of important for the way you think of this. Yeah, I do. I I remember her saying, look, you know, you're going through a huge transition. And we see in our teenagers who are also going through a huge transition from living at home to, you know, becoming adults, going to college, um, that the sort of um, rituals of this rite of passage, if you think of it as a rite of passage, can be incredibly useful to them um, in, in kind of formalizing the transition in, um, in a way sort of signposting it um, and then in incorporating these sort of traditional elements of, of these kinds of rites of passage. So where you have the first part is this kind of separation, you know, from your community where you go off, you know, someplace. And then the middle, the middle section is this, is, is the actual sort of, you know, um, quest by fire in a way, um, where you're challenged, um, you're, um, you're, you're sort of in a place where you're forcing yourself to sort of grow and learn about yourself. And then the third element is this kind of, um, um, reincorporation, 
uh, back into community where, you know, you've become kind of a, a grown up or you've become a different person in some, mm-hmm. hopefully some um, useful and profound way. Would you read an excerpt just from that part of it, which is where you're thinking about um, what, I, I guess, what kind of transition that you're in? Maybe I'll just put it that way. Add anything to that that you'd like to say. Okay, sure. So um, I'll read a section here about um, about what I was thinking um, and what I had learned. Women my age, too, are wired for transition. The writer and ethnographer Howard Norman once told me about interviewing an Inuit woman who laid out her life story. He said to her, I see everything but the years from when you were 50 to 54. Oh, I have no words for those years, she replied. Why not? he asked. In those years, she told him, I was a polar bear. These are our polar bear years. Everything about us is changing, physically, hormonally, emotionally. Our shifting roles in culture, work, and family upend our identities, even without divorce. I told Barnes about my own reluctant transition and my desire to market and recover from it, figure out what the hell comes next. She convinced me of the importance of setting clear intentions for my solo, and I found myself reviewing them during the quiet stretches on Deso, which was the part that came before the solo. What did I really want to do out here? I wanted, of course, to be fixed, to transform into a woman ready to take on the rest of her life, to launch my boat as a means of launching myself into a better future. But Julie Barnes had warned me those expectations were naive and impatient. It was more realistic to solidify the goodbyes. I wanted, like Barnes's school kids, to individuate, in my case, away from my moribund, fossilized identity in a couple. To do that, I wanted to access my bravery. I wanted to transmute my fear into something else. Something like what I had glimpsed paddling through disaster falls and split mountain. Momentum power, agency. I wanted to learn how to take care of myself and learn how to be alone. I wanted to cultivate beauty and experience awe. I wanted, finally, to say goodbye to my marriage. Florence Williams reading from her memoir, a new book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. So the river... uh, the river rafting, the river trip succeeds in some ways, you know, you get what you're looking for. And in other ways, I guess it's not as nourishing as you think it will be. Why? I think the reason it, it wasn't completely, you know, the magic bullet I had hoped, well, is that A, there are no magic bullets uh, in heartbreak. And B, I was alone. You know, I did part of it alone. And uh, while that was probably useful in, yes, helping me access some bravery and giving me a lot of time to reflect, uh, especially on sort of my role, um, perhaps in the end of the divorce or the end of the marriage. Um, Again, when you're alone, your nervous system is not going to calm down. Uh, It's actually going to become more alert than ever because, again, you're alone in the wilderness. Hello. So you you have to really pay incredible attention, you know, to everything around you. You can't just sort of zone out. um, And you can't screw up. You can't, you know, tie the boat in incorrectly, you know, and have it disappear down the river without you. Um, You can't cut yourself 
um, you can't, you know, you can't be lazy about, you know, not putting your shoes on before you step on a scorpion or something like that. Um, <laughs> you have to really, really be very alert. And so, so it's interesting because I, I did a blood sample, you know, after the river trip and right, before the river right. trip, I was so invested in the idea that nature can cure us that I thought, oh, I'm going to do these before and after blood, blood samples. And, you know, it's going to be so much better when I get off the river. <laughs> but in fact, it wasn't better. It was kind of the same. Um, and, and Steve Cole at UCLA said, yeah, you know, you really were not calming down, you know, your fear system out there because <laughs> hello, you were alone in the wilderness. Um, in some ways, I think about that trip that you did as more valuable in kind of the rearview mirror. Like, I'm glad I did it. It was scary while I did it. I'm glad it's over. You, you know, like, more of the power of it is in hindsight than the experience <laughs> of doing it. <laughs> how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, th I think that may be true. I mean, there were certainly a lot of moments of sort of magic, you know, on the river. Mm -hmm. um, I learned really how to meditate out there, you know, which was, Did you? was yeah. really great. Yeah, because for once, you know, <laughs> it was so quiet. My <laughs> my mind did sort of quiet down enough uh, that I could do that for a while. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I'm proud of, too, is I, I do think it it helped my kids kind of think of me as being brave and being mm -hmm. less worried about me. Um, I think I modeled for them, you know, that, that I was, you know, able to sort of pull this off. And, um, you know, I, f I feel like, I, I feel proud of that. Uh, you know, part of the challenge I think is, and I think you write about this in the nature fix is how to bring that, that calming and that centeredness and that experience of being in nature back into right. Your everyday life. I think about this all the time. Like, how do I have an experience like this that really does feel transformative and be able to access that again when I'm back in the busy, noisy world and I don't, and I want to grab onto that and I want to kind of live that yeah. again, but it, it's elusive. It's elusive, but it's an essential question um, because we have to learn how to do it. Uh, you know, and I think the pandemic has really taught us the urgency and importance of learning how to find moments of calm and solace right. without right. going on some exotic vacation. Uh, you know, here, this is where our lives are. This is where we are. Um, we need to bring these skills uh, into our daily lives. And, you know, as I mentioned, stress is not necessarily a bad thing, but we need to learn how to recover from it on almost a daily basis, you know, if we're going to sort of refill our tanks and, and be able to kind of yeah. get up the next day and, and do meaningful things in the world. Uh, do you and think so, you know how to, I'm sorry, Florence, for interrupting. Do you feel like you know how to do that because you've studied the science for lot. it? Yeah, you have. Yeah, I've learned a lot. I have. And, and again, it's these lessons mostly from, from the Nature Fix book um, about learning how to be present in the moment and turn on my senses. So, you know, often if you think about this, if we, you know, we have a, a quick break or a lunch break or something, we, we want to go for a power walk. Um, but how much of that time do we still spend sort of cycling through our to-do lists, thinking about mm -hmm. what's for dinner? Um, 
you know, our, our brains are still going 100 miles an hour. But I, what I learned from that book, and, and especially from, from, from going to Japan, actually, and learning about this practice of what they call forest bathing, that, mm-hmm. that there are ways we can cue our senses to sort of wake up. And we can ask ourselves, um, you know, what birds am I hearing? You know, am I, am I seeing any patterns uh, in the creek? You know, what are the waves doing? What, what do the leaves look like in the trees? Or what do, what do the branches look like? What patterns do I see? You know, what are the clouds doing? You know, what am I smelling? Um, we can cue ourselves by asking these very simple questions, um, even, you know, in an urban area, uh, if we can find a patch of nature uh, and cue into that. And it turns out that, that that opening up our senses for a moment really does take us out of our thinking brains, even for just micro moments. Uh, in this way that is very restorative, according to the science, uh, and very helpful. And so I have learned, I feel like, some tips and trip, tips, tricks and tips for how to do that. <laughs> one of the things that Helen Fisher tells you, one of the scientists that you write about early in the book, if people are just joining the discussion, um, she says to you, listen, kiddo, the day will come when you'll look back and say you're sorry he didn't leave sooner. I wondered if the day has come. <laughs> Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, you know, I'm glad for my children's sake that we, you know, stuck it out as long as we did. Um, and for the most part, I look back on the long years of my marriage, you know, with fondness. Um, they were that we had a lot of good years together, so I don't necessarily wish it had been much shorter. Um, but I also met at a point where I'm feeling optimistic about my future. Um, I still do believe in love. And, uh, I, I was, I was recently, I I read a story about, um, sort of the secrets of, of living happily into your old age. And someone interviewed a 96 year old woman and she said, oh, I'm so lucky. I've had two wonderful marriages. And I thought, well, actually, that sounds pretty good. You know, I know. maybe we can just have a series of marriages. It doesn't have to be one, one, one does it? <laughs> well, okay, maybe I've seen too many Hollywood rom-coms here, but I really thought the memoir was going to end with, and a new love. Here I am. And, and it didn't, but that doesn't mean it isn't happening. No. Yeah, I, no? I really, I did not want that kind of kind of ridiculous ending to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I have had some really nice relationships uh, since my marriage ended. Uh, certainly there's been some happiness there, but you know, ultimately I don't think that the happiest ending, you know, has to be the one where um, we meet Prince Charming. Right. Um, you know, really there are lots of ways to be happy in the world and uh, that's just one of them. Okay, so you don't meet Prince Charming, but you now you know yourself better. Now you're wiser about a potential partner. I don't know, you're older, you know, now whoever might be out there fits the person you are today. Um, yeah, I didn't want some fakey end. I was just curious, and you've, I guess I should say you've <laughs> satisfied my curiosity, kind of. <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> Not entirely. Stay tuned for the next book. <laughs> <laughs> ah, really? No, I'm kidding. Um, okay. I don't know. All right. You know, who knows? We'll see. Um, 
I, yeah, I, I mean, never ask authors I, about the next book. So, um, you know, cause we're focused on this one. My gosh, it's a huge accomplishment. You were going to say. I just kind of, I, I resent in some ways, you know, the expectation that in order for a woman to be happy, you know, she has to find, you know, a man or for sure. a partner or a life partner. Um, and I think as we get older, um, if anything, we have more options open to us. And there are lots of ways to move through the world, lots of ways to have love in our lives. Um, and I, I don't think that the Hollywood ending, um, you know, really serves us that well. If we, if we perpetuate, you know, the myth that this is what you need to be happy. And I, I just, um, I guess I wanted to bust quite a few myths in this book. Um, and, and that was one of them. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Florence Williams' new book is titled Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. Florence, thank you. Great to have you on. Thank you so much, Carrie. It's been a pleasure.